chapter 4, the act of apprehension. Nature of the thing. If we now try to clarify what the act of apprehension actually consists of, the question arises first, what do we apprehend? Answer, originally and directly, only things. Indirectly, their properties and processes. Only in relation to things, finally, the finding spirit. The things correspond to independent, concrete. Their properties to dependent, abstract, concepts. But what are things? First of all, like numbers, they are ones. Furthermore, they are ones which are considered to be real. Finally, they are epitomes of boundless properties. The term epitome means the spatio-temporal connection of all only possible properties, which are determined at a thing, and is therefore not to be confused with the concept of a sum. Of no thing can be stated how many properties it possesses, since their number constantly increases in the measure of our growing knowledge of it. By touch I learn many things about the surface of a thing that I have not yet learned by inspection. And I learn new things again with the help of a magnifying glass. Not to speak of the material properties that are revealed in ever-increasing numbers by chemical reactions. The senses offer us a real, but we could not consider the reality data as properties of something if the existing one would not already be available which in those, so it seems, only comes, only comes to the representation. In a single sentence, the determination of the thing would have to be as follows. The thing is the assumed point of relation for a spatio-temporally related multiplicity of species properties. Refutation of Sensualism In contrast to this definition, sensualism lets the properties of the species be quote-unquote felt, and therefore sees in the things quote-unquote complexes, or quote, bundles of sensory contents, unquote. With this, however, one turns in circles one way or the other. If one understands the perceived redness loudness, hardness under the sensation content of the red loudness, hardness, then these would not be sensation contents at all, but properties of already assumed things. If on the other hand one understands real sides of the sensually experienced under it, then we remember that all experience flows temporally, and therefore could only correspond to a temporally flowing reality. To bundle sense data together would only succeed if each of them would be still, would be a lasting something, and consequently would already have the character of the thing, which was just in question. On the basis of the invalidation of the sensualistic false doctrine, we want to go one step further in the demonstration of the fundamental difference between thing and sense experience. It is not enough that our experience flows, moreover, 
It has also changed in every moment. Not even in any fraction of a second does any sense experience remain the same. From the numerous quite incontestable proofs for this, we give only two. A. Every sensory impression is subject to a noticeable dulling, adaptation, after a few minutes. If we step out of a dark room into a very bright room, we feel dazzled in the first moment and can hardly distinguish the individual things. But already after half a minute the glare has decreased noticeably. And even after five minutes we recognise everything with full clarity. If impressions are repeated sufficiently often, they tend to be completely removed from our perception. We are so accustomed to the pressure of our clothes. We are so accustomed to the pressure that our clothes exerts on thousands of skin areas that we notice it only extremely incompletely, even when we pay explicit attention to it. But if every impression falls victim to a dulling of measurable noticeability within a determinable period of time, then it must obviously have the nature of a fact, which changes even in vanishing periods of time, even if imperceptibly. B. If I have just perceived anything for the first time, a and uh, let me try that again. B. If I have just perceived anything for the first time, A, and perceive it for the second time after an hour, B, then it follows from the circumstance that I recognise it, that the impression, which is the basis of the act of perception B, must have been somehow different from the cause of the impression of the act of perception A. In the case of B, it has acquired, as one is wont to say, the character of familiarity. Compared to the justifying impression of A, the justifying impression of B has become different by that component which caused it that the thing now seems familiar to me, while before it seemed new to me. Consequently, we cannot receive two mathematically equal impressions from any thing. But if the impressions we receive from the same thing are infallibly different and always different, it would be absurd to want to understand the unity of the thing from impression data. The thought of the unity of the thing is closely related to that of the monotony of the thing. If we say of something that it is the same, then we have obviously understood the something as a unity, no matter how many properties or even partial units of this unity can be distinguished further. Proceeding from the monotony of the thing, one has now thought to be allowed to explain its unity from the similarity of successive contents of experience in connection with the steadiness of the transition from one to the other. However, even if their differences could no longer be noticed and practically coincided with sameness, this would still only establish a close connection of the temporal sections of the experience, but not at all a unity of the object. If I judge, this table is the same as the one I just saw, perhaps from a greater distance, then I have moved both tables, the one from before and the one from now, next to each other in my mind, and compared their characteristics with each other. So I do not arrive at the concept of the table thing by comparing impressions, but I compare the present impression with the remembered impression with regard to the table already found and known to me. In other words, in the second case I have the perception of the table 
together with a quote-unquote conception of the very same table, and I can dispose of this indisputably, only because of the moment of the original perception that I already perceived the table, thus the thing. But what is true of two different impressions is equally true of two temporally different sections of any impression itself. But what is true of two different impressions is equally true of two temporally different sections of any impression itself. No stringing together of elements of the impression would achieve the monotony of the thing, if a first and only look had not already given me the extinguishing one, excuse me, the existing one, in view of which all comparing, like distinguishing, first gets a meaning. We remark in passing that we are not concerned here with the solution of the hardly still investigated questions which conditions must be fulfilled, so that the animal recognition which others, so that the human act of identification can take place, in particular which degree of dissimilarity makes the distinguishing performance possible. Permanence of the Grasping Act The monotony of the thing, which is continuous with respect to time, requires that the act of grasping a thing takes place in a point without temporal extension. But if it is timeless, it must also be spaceless, and of course speciesless. Therefore, it does not belong to the world of events, but means in relation to it the indiscriminate act which repeats itself from time to time and is therefore merely countable. Proof. Considered in relation to time, everything has the peculiarity to last during the period of its quote-unquote existence. What does it mean? If we imagine the time span during which a thing exists under the image of a straight line, then our assumption of its equally uninterrupted duration presupposes that we believe to be certain to find at any point B of this line the same something that we found at any point A. If we delete the points in question, then we no longer have the possibility to find uniformity in the temporal flow of effect. But then, not even the possibility to know about the existence of the thing. Accordingly, the reverse is also true. That finding of the thing is finding of a temporally unextended place. But the temporally unextended place of time is set only by a temporally unextended act. If we tentatively assume that the Finding Act requires a temporal period, however slight, it would itself run in time or flow with time, and would therefore be unable to divide the temporal line in the unextended point. The time-dividing deed, therefore, does not lie in time, but it meets time, meeting it, as it were, just as in the picture the graduation line stands perpendicular to the line to be divided. Reader's note, there's a very simple illustration here, which is just a line. It is marked with an A and a B, and there's an arrow going from A to the B. Okay, onwards. Perhaps one relies, replies, <clears throat> perhaps one replies that the real time is nothing comparable to an extension, but the pauseless coming and going of moments which can never be grasped. As much as one would be right with this, it would not change the fact that space does not consist of metre lengths. Time does not consist of days, hours, minutes. If we nevertheless judge that something lasts, 
then we must also be able to indicate how long it lasts. But in order to measure duration, quantities with each other, we have divided time like a distance by creating limiting points in it, which for their part are without duration, and for this the time differentiated act is necessary. Only such a faculty is able to set places as the pauselessly flowing time stream, which for its part does not possess the dimension of time. We attach mathematical certainty to this proof. To have first established and irrefutably substantiated the permanence or instantaneity of the mental act is the merit of Melchior Pelagi, whose quote, Natural Philosophical Lectures on the Basic Problems of Consciousness and Life, end quote, first published in 1907, are epoch-making in this respect.